0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 8th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, last week we talked about the early reports of the recently described Omicron variant. What we know is still limited, but this variant virus could contribute to increased transmission in the future. But in fact, even now we have no shortage of transmission from the Delta variant. And in many parts of the United States and Europe, there's a substantial rise in the rate of disease, even without the new Omicron variant. Many factors seem to be contributing to this, including large numbers of unvaccinated people in some areas. But another contributing factor is waning immunity. So today, let's discuss some new data that addresses this issue and how boosting might help. Let's start with a population-based study from New York that looked at immunity over time after vaccination. This is something we published last week. We've heard about other populations before, but what makes New York a good place to figure out how immunity works?
1: Steve, I think that New York has a few advantages. First, it's a big place. This study had more than 8 million people included. And second, they were able to link data from four different databases that included pretty detailed information on the timing and manufacturer of each administered vaccine and the results of all COVID testing and hospitalizations. And third, unlike some of the large effectiveness data we've seen before, New York has used all three of the vaccines that are available in the US. Together, these allowed the investigators to determine the effectiveness of each vaccine and the duration of that effectiveness when different variants were dominant. And then what did they learn? Well, there's a wealth of data in this very large data set. To summarize it very briefly, the investigators saw similar results to those seen in other studies effectiveness against infection was higher for the mRNA vaccines than for Ad26 COVID2S the Janssen vaccine and declined for all the vaccines both before and after delta became the dominant variant however all the vaccines remained quite good at preventing hospitalization since the Janssen vaccine was introduced later and there were fewer recipients it was more difficult to estimate the duration of the persistence of immunity
2: so eric and steve As we've discussed before, there are several factors in play and leveraging the New York experience, so to speak, is very helpful, but we do have to weigh issues such as the time from infection or vaccination, the variant or variants that are circulating and challenging the immunity, The enhanced testing that is now going on is we're now able to test more widely, although our testing strategies are still inadequate for what we need to prevent transmission. But it does allow us to diagnose infected individuals where in the past we may not have. And then the outcome of interest. And as you pointed out, Eric, in preventing hospitalization, but we do need to pay attention to clinical mild or moderate illness versus hospitalization versus death. So there are a variety of factors that change through time that we have to weigh carefully as we compare data between vaccines and also between epochs of COVID illness.
1: Steve, you brought up in the introduction the new variant Omicron, which is circulating, and we have very little to guide us on understanding what's going to happen with that. But I think that as Lindsay said, Each time a new variant appears, we are concerned about the spread of that variant in a population that's already immunized or already infected, as is largely the case in South Africa, something we learned when we spoke to Slim last week about the Omicron variant in South Africa. So I do think we can extrapolate a little bit from these data to say that Delta, which is sufficiently different from the strains that were used in designing the vaccines, can infect people who are vaccinated. It can infect them better over time, but I think we have a bit of a signal here that we can use to guess what's going to happen as new variants appear. Remember, these variants evolved in the presence of the vaccinated population, and therefore they were selected to some extent to be able to infect people who are either previously infected or vaccinated.
2: Eric, we focus a lot on vaccination and the immunity that it engenders, but as you just noted, natural infection also engenders an immune response, and therefore future variants need to outsmart that immunity to be successful as larger populations have natural infection. And that becomes another selective factor as future variants emerge that we have to take into consideration when we try and understand their transmission patterns.
1: Lindsay, it's a really important point. And I think that very early on, there was a lot of discussion of herd immunity as being something that would be protective in the population. And I think that what we've learned is that people who've been previously infected can be infected again, especially as these variants come along. Now, those people may be relatively protected against severe disease, which is important, But if they continue to be infected as these new variants arise, we are going to get limited protection for the whole population against the spread of infection.
2: And Eric, I think this speaks to us thinking a little bit about the history of viruses and humans and co-adaptation. There are four seasonal coronaviruses that we've gotten used to as a population and as a community, and we've considered them annoying colds but never something that required lots of attention, such as the current pandemic virus that we're dealing with. So one wonders, as the co-adaptation occurs, at what point might there be more attenuation of severity of illness that allows this co-adaptation to occur? Unfortunately, it's less likely to occur over months, and it probably takes years, But it is something we have to think about as this virus continues to learn how to circulate in the context of natural immunity and very likely causing less severe illness as that occurs, given how coevolution works.
0: So getting back to the issue of waning immunity, one way to combat it is to boost with additional doses of the vaccines. We've discussed some of the data behind this, but most of the evidence we've seen has been in vitro measurements of antibody levels. Today, though, we published two studies of booster effectiveness, both from Israel. In fact, a good deal of the evidence for waning immunity and now for the use of boosters has come from Israel.
1: Why is that? Steve, it's pretty simple. Israel instituted widespread vaccination very early. And because they started vaccination early, they had a large population at risk for waning immunity, only because so many people had received the vaccine many months ago. In addition, they have very strong monitoring systems. So today's studies, like we've seen before, come from the Israeli Ministry of Health, which has quite a comprehensive collection of data, and CLALIT, the HMO that covers more than half of the population and has access to the detailed records from the primary medical care of their members. Because they began administering boosters to the general population long before other countries, Israel has pretty much served as a model upon which most of current booster policy is based remember though that virtually all vaccination in israel has been with bnt162b2 the pfizer vaccine so we should be careful about generalizing results to recipients of other vaccines
2: so i just want to take a moment and appreciate what we have been able to learn from our colleagues around the world particularly israel and south africa as two examples where they have leveraged their scientific capability to understand viral pathogenesis transmission dynamics and share these data with the world rapidly. And though there are limitations to the work that has been done in these two arenas, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the scientists there who have systematically applied science for us all to learn. As you know, the recent Omicron emergence teaches us from our South African scientists. And here, with the vaccine booster challenges, our Israeli colleagues have been able to look at their natural experiment of deploying the vaccine to better understand the strengths and weaknesses of those strategies in the context of an evolving foe or pathogen. So looking at the two Israeli studies, what do they teach us?
1: Let's start with the study from Khalidt. The investigators looked at all members who were at least 50 years old and had received vaccine at least five months earlier. They compared the mortality rates due to COVID-19 and those who received boosters with those who did not. Using medical records, they were able to adjust for a large number of factors that might vary between those who received vaccine and those who didn't. However, they also moved people from the unboosted to the boosted group a week after they received vaccine so that many individuals overlapped between the groups. The primary outcome was mortality, though the investigators also looked at infection, as measured by PCR assay, as a secondary outcome. This was a large group. It contained almost 850,000 individuals. There were 65 deaths in the boosted group and 137 in the unboosted group. Because almost 90% of the total group got boosters by the end of the study, when you correct for the denominator, the booster was about 90% effective at preventing death. This was particularly apparent among those over 65, but seemed to hold up in younger age groups as well, though the numbers were smaller. In the secondary analysis of infection, the booster had 83% effectiveness. Remember, though, that we don't know why people were tested, so this number is a little less solid than the mortality statistics. And what about the Ministry of Health study? This study used a large database that we've talked about before when we've discussed the previous work from this group. The database includes dates of vaccination, dates and results of PCR testing, whether disease is mild or severe, and the vital status, along with some other demographics. Like the Kalit study, the investigators looked at those who received vaccine at least five months earlier and looked at individuals dynamically as they moved from unboosted to boosted groups. What was slightly different is that the colleague group looked at time starting seven days after the booster, while the Ministry of Health researchers started 12 days after boosting. Both of these numbers were kind of guesses as to when the vaccine would become effective. The investigators looked at the risk of each outcome stratified by age group, though they restricted the analysis of severe disease to older ages, because severe disease is more common in those age groups. The database contained almost 5 million individuals who met the entry criteria. The total numbers were very high. There were 80,000 confirmed infections in the unboosted group and 6,000 in the boosted group, 1,100 cases of severe illness in the unboosted and 175 in the boosted, and 300 deaths as compared to 35 deaths in the unboosted and boosted groups. When corrected, these resulted in a better than 90% effectiveness in preventing infection. In older age groups, they saw an almost 95% protection against severe disease and death. It's important to remember that everyone in these studies had already received a full course of vaccines. Even in the age of Delta, vaccination is still quite effective in preventing severe disease and death. So the protection that we see here is on top of what was already being provided by the initial vaccine series. In other words, Altogether, the boost was incredibly efficacious and certainly at preventing severe disease.
2: So, Eric, I think that these two studies are very helpful to frame where boosting may fit in and potential benefit. And as we've discussed before, these reports show evolving methodologies that are being developed for us to leverage real-world data, particularly countrywide efforts, in the context of a variant sweeping through that country to understand how this type of public health intervention may provide benefit. There are certain weaknesses or challenges associated with this type of design, such as the lack of randomization. So there may be other factors that are unmeasured that may be playing a role in the outcomes that we see in terms of differential timing of groups approaching vaccination or revaccination or accessibility. They're changing denominators. They account for this in part by understanding that individuals can cross over from group A to group B after the intervention and a period of time for that immune response to emerge. But I think it is important for us to keep in mind that the absolute rates versus the relative rates are very important to pay attention to, and that the overall benefit of vaccinating the primary vaccination is really the most important intervention in preventing subsequent severe illness. And that what these analyses are trying to help us understand is the incremental benefit of boosting on top of a primary series. And though there is a benefit with boosting, the absolute benefit needs to be looked at carefully in relation to the other interventions so that we can make as informed a public health policy as possible. So I think these data are encouraging. They are supportive of boosting as many public health agencies have engaged, including here in the US, but they do need to be looked at carefully in relation to the absolute rates and that in relation to the circulating variants.
1: Lindsay, I think you're right that any real world data has its limitations. And one of the major issues with effectiveness data is that the group that got boosters may be different from the group that didn't get boosters. And that's something we see in every study. The beauty of the Israeli data is virtually everyone got boosters. It just was a matter of when they got them. And it's certainly true that when they got them may have been dictated by non-random events, and therefore the numbers are not totally secure. But I think this gives a very good idea of the general range of effectiveness. These are highly effective. As to your second point about how important the primary series is, we published an editorial by Manish Patel discussing these two papers, which estimated that the effectiveness against severe infection was probably on the order of 90% from the primary series. And that would mean that this is 90% on top of 90% or almost 99% efficacy. Now, those numbers, again, are very extrapolated. Still, there is immense protection by adding that third dose.
2: Don't get me wrong. I think that there is value in boosting. I think that the biggest value is the primary series and the primary series to everyone who could benefit across the globe. And then the boosting is an additional protection, which makes sense, but we need to scale up the vaccine availability so all of these potential benefits can be deployed.
0: So how does all of this help shape our thinking about the value of boosters? How should we be using them?
1: It's a very good question. It's clear from data like these that boosting is working. It's providing an increment of protection above the protection already offered by the primary series. Now, how you deploy that in a public health setting is a little less clear. It's certainly true that those at highest risk of developing severe disease should receive boosters. I think that that's an easy call. The more difficult call is, what about the rest of the population? These data suggest that there is pretty good protection against infection. So therefore, boosting should have an effect on community transmission of disease. So that's an obvious benefit. But Lindsay just made the point that primary immunization is more important than boosting. And so, to the extent that boosting eats into the resources available for primary vaccination, then it's not a good thing. So, there continues to be a supply issue. And in the US, there's abundant vaccine. In most of Western Europe, there's abundant vaccine available. But that's coming at the cost of it not being available in most of the rest of the world. So I think it's not an easy public health decision as to how to allocate what are still somewhat scarce resources. The decision for an individual physician, I'm afraid, is pretty easy. Boosting is good. It's probably good for everybody. But for public health agencies, I think it is a more difficult decision.
2: And Derek, I think part of what we have to think about with vaccinating and boosting are the resources available to deliver, such as supply, but also the challenges of vaccine hesitancy, the need for education, and generating data relevant to communities that are uncertain. And so I think that is also part of what we as a community need to do better, is how to educate those who may benefit from vaccination so they find it an appropriate choice in moving forward with protecting their health and the health of their families and community. Steve, another consideration with boosting is thinking about the reagents we have, meaning the platform, homologous or heterologous, should you get the same mRNA or viral vector? The insert, should it be the ancestral antigen or the latest circulating variant? Is there an issue of the series of which of those two combinations you receive and what series with the amount of time between them? And then understanding the durability of the protection elicited. So boosting is not as straightforward as it seems in that, let me get my second or third shot. There are other factors where data are being generated to inform how to make it most effective. And Steve, understanding which booster vaccine I should get, for example, unfortunately, the data don't exist yet to be directive. And these data are in the process of being generated. And we look forward to having more directive data. But unfortunately, with COVID, everything moves so fast that we have to use the best understanding currently available.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.